how good it is for us to be together as the church to worship the one true and living God, to hear what he's doing in the lives of his people, to hear from him through his holy word. And this morning we're going to be in the book of Titus together. Titus chapter 2, so you can be making your way there. Uh, Titus is a very small book. And so uh, in the New Testament, if you, if you find the T's, uh, just they're in alphabetical order. So if you're able to find Thessalonians or, or Timothy, keep going and you'll find Titus. Titus is this a brief letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus, a fellow laborer, a pastor, a pastoral leader on this island called Crete. And Paul is writing this letter to Titus to instruct him. He's giving him instructions on some things he should do, uh, one of them being he should establish elders in the churches there on the island, those elders who would in turn shepherd God's people. Shepherd God's people in godly living. Paul's concern in this letter, not only here, but as we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, is that believers live out the gospel in their daily lives. That there would be consistency between what a person believes and the way that that person lives. And so in this letter in particular, we see the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ saving sinners, and then equipping believers to live godly lives. We're going to read from Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and I'll read through verse 14. And in these verses, here's what we see. We see that by the grace of God, we live lives that are consistent with our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ while we wait for his return. So if you're able, if you would stand with me in honor of God, we're going to read from Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. Our Father and our God, we bless your name this morning. You are the one true and living God. And this morning, as every morning, we are desperately needy for you. And so we come asking for your help. Will you give us minds and hearts that are receptive to your truth? Come and be our teacher this morning, we pray through Christ our Savior. Amen. As I said, in these few verses, what we see is by the grace of God, we live godly lives that are consistent with our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ while we wait for his return. As always, context, when we're reading the scripture, context is important. And so we, we find ourselves here kind of in the middle of this book of Titus. 
And if we, if we back up just a few verses to the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 2, uh, we notice what's happening here. Paul has instructed Titus to teach. He says, Titus, you're to teach sound doctrine. And then he instructs Titus about older men in the church. Notice what he says, how they are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. He instructs uh, Titus to teach the older women, older women in the church, how they are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And they are to teach the young women to love their husbands and children. He gives instruction about young men in the church. Young men are to be self-controlled and then about himself. Again, Titus, you're to show yourself to be a model of good works, a man of integrity. And then he instructs Titus about bondservants, and he says they are to be submissive to their masters, well-pleasing, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So, numerous instructions here, exhortations from Paul to Titus and then to the church in these first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2, and then we come to verse 11. Verse 11, we read, for, for the grace of God has appeared. So, here is the ground here is the, the basis for the exhortation to godly living that Paul has given. If we read Paul elsewhere in the New Testament, what we find is he, he often does this thing where he, he lays out the indicatives first. The book of Ephesians is a great example of this. Here's who you are. This is what God has done. And he spends considerable time teaching believers this is what God has done. This is who God is. And now this is who you are. And then... He turns a corner, and he starts to give instruction. In light of who you are, this is what you do. He flips the order here in the book of Titus. Paul has given these imperatives. This is what you do. And now verse 11 serves as a link for us. This little word, for. Don't pass over it quickly. It's the link. Introducing the, the ground or the basis Here's why we are to do the things we've been called to do. What we see first is that God's grace brings salvation. God's grace brings salvation. We see this in verse 11. Let's talk about grace for a moment. We read of God's grace in Scripture. In fact, most of Paul's letters in the opening, say something like this, grace to you. Grace to you. We sing about God's grace. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. You're singing it even now in your heads. That saved a wretch like me. So we read of God's grace and we, we sing of God's grace. Grace is God's kindness to us in salvation. We might say that grace is unmerited or unearned, undeserved favor. 
God reveals himself as a gracious God. This is who he is. If we go back to the, near, near the beginning of the scripture, in, in the book of Exodus, in chapters 33 and 34, we read of this remarkable interchange that happens between Almighty God and his servant Moses. Moses was to ascend Mount Sinai, and there God would write on the tablets of stone commandments. And Moses said to the Lord, please, show me your glory. And the Lord says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Moses does what he was instructed to do. He ascends Mount Sinai, and then in verse 5 of chapter 34, we read these words. The Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Our God is a gracious God. He shows us undeserved, unmerited favor. Here in Titus, we see that God's grace has appeared. And it has brought salvation to all people. This verse shouldn't be understood to be teaching some kind of universalism that every person will be saved, but rather all people here refers to people of all kinds. Jew and Gentile. God's grace has appeared, bringing the offer of salvation to all who would believe. Think of this for a moment. Salvation comes to people of every walk of life. And so this means that we cannot conclude that because a a person is of a particular ethnicity or of a particular social structure or that they are beyond the bounds of salvation. They're beyond God's grace. Rather, salvation has come for all people. The very last book of Scripture, the book of Revelation, we read these beautiful words in chapter 5 and verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth Salvation for all people. 
Salvation means to, to save or, or rescue. God's grace is, is the only means by which a person may be rescued. The only means by which a person may be truly delivered from the curse of sin. And so, we as people under the curse of sin must receive this grace of God that is offered in His Son and our Savior, Jesus God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation. It's April 2nd. And we recognize that in central Illinois, uh, the month of March, the, the weather can be difficult. Bleak. Day after day, the sun seems to hide behind the clouds and sometimes there's just little reprieve from the wind and the rain and sometimes even snow. Leaving many of us longing for, for the warmth of the summer sun. I can remember just a couple weeks ago, I was outside on a, on a particular day after having had several days where it was, it was overcast. And I can remember uh, being outside, and, and that afternoon, the, the, the clouds started to begin to break up just a little bit, and then a little more. And, and soon, the, the sun was, was shining. The sun appeared, and I, its effects were immediate. I felt the warmth of the sun on my face. It felt so good. The sun appeared. And it brought with it warmth. Paul says here, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. With God's grace comes salvation, comes deliverance, comes life. In a world that is cold and dark, like March in central Illinois, cold and dark, bleak because of sin, shines the grace of God bringing salvation for all who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace brings salvation. Second, we see that God's grace trains us in how we are to live. God's grace trains us in how we are to live. As we read through this, this short letter from, from Paul to Titus, we, we see that Paul, again, he's, he's placing his, an emphasis on the importance of godly living for the believer. He's concerned that there is, there's consistency. There's consistency between uh, what a person professes and how that person lives. You see, the believers to whom uh, Titus was ministering, they were in danger of being duped by these teachers whose lives were not characterized by this important word, godliness. They weren't characterized by godliness. Back in chapter 1, we, we read Paul quoting a, a poet. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's not a flattering description. He goes on then in, in chapter 1, of those who are defiled in their minds and conscience, Paul says, they, 
They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They profess to know him. They deny him by their works. There was a disconnect. There was a disconnect here, saying one thing, living another. And so in the midst of this this dark culture, on this, this island of Crete, shines the grace of God training believers. We don't have to work too hard to draw parallels from the island of Crete to the present day. We, we live in a dark culture. A, a, a culture in which people profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. But the beautiful truth for us is that into this dark culture in which we live shines the grace of God. And God's grace, God's grace trains us. We, we, we must understand that God's grace does, um, it, it does more than justify us. As unspeakably marvelous as that reality is, God's grace also sanctifies us. Justification, God's grace justifies us. At one point in our lives, we are justified. We're declared righteous because of what Christ has done. But his grace is also working in our lives continually, sanctifying us, which is a way to say making us more like Jesus. And so you and I are reliant upon, God, reliant upon God's grace every day. Every moment of every day, we're relying on the grace of God that that trains us. Certainly the words of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, are true. He says, "'Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." God's grace trains us. Let's consider the ways that it does so. First, we see God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. To turn from them. You see, when when God's grace comes to us in salvation, something happens. We're made new. This this heart of stone that once lived inside of us is is removed, and that heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, one that desires to follow Christ. A change takes place. And God's grace in our life teaches us to say no. No to ungodliness. Some have simply said that ungodliness is the opposite of godliness. So, in order to help us grasp what this is, that when we're speaking of ungodliness, consider what, what is godliness. One definition I read of godliness says this, godliness is reverence for or devotion to God, producing a practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. To be godly is to think God's thoughts after him. Is to speak in a way that honors him. 
make decisions that bring him glory. This is godliness. And so to be ungodly is to have no regard for God in the way I speak, in my thought life, in the decisions that I make. No regard for God. It's, it's to let the old fleshly nature kind of spew out in an unrestrained way. Furthermore, we should hear this carefully, ungodliness incurs the wrath of God. In Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God's grace trains us to deny ungodliness, to deny this way of living. When I'm tempted to respond in an ungodly way, to use harsh words, to lie, God's grace restrains me. His grace restrains me, teaching me to say no. God's grace trains us to renounce worldly passions. Passions that are characteristic of the world, fleshly desires, greed and envy, sinful desire for for control. God's grace teaches me to say no to that. The words of the Apostle John come to mind in, in his letter 1 John. In chapter 2, he writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. A person who has, who has no desire to say no to, to turn from ungodliness and worldly passions must question whether or not they have received the grace of God. For God's grace changes us. It trains us to say no. And it trains us to say yes. Yes, to a life that, that honors God. If we continue on, God's grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's where we live. In the present age. If the negative is, is to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, the positive then is we pursue self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This is what we do. By God's grace. By God's grace we do this. We praise him for his grace. When we say no to a fleshly desire, when we turn from ungodliness, we praise him for his grace. When we make decisions that please the Lord, when we live uprightly, And godly, we praise him. Lord, we praise you for your grace. 
So God's grace trains us to say no to things that dishonor God. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And we live in such a way while we wait. We're waiting. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, this sense of waiting is, is a waiting that is looking forward to. We might say with, with eager anticipation. It's an active kind of waiting. It's not a passive kind of sitting back with our arms crossed or our, our feet up. It's an eager kind of waiting. We're waiting for, looking for the blessed hope. Many of you are in school in, in, in some way, little up to, to bigs, right? Um, you're in school, and um, about this time, about April, um, most of us, well, let's just say we're about ready to be done. School, uh, we, we have our eyes set on, on that last day. We've been made aware of what projects need to be completed, uh, maybe the tests that, are, that need to happen, um, maybe taking a look at your grades and what, what you need to do or what you should do. Um, and, and now you're waiting. You're waiting for that last day, but again, it's not this kind of passive waiting. You're engaged. Perhaps some of you have, have even started a countdown and, and you're marking off the days on a calendar. You're, you're looking forward to, you're anticipating the last day of school, and there's a very real sense in which you say something like this, I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait for this to come. Brothers and sisters, God's grace instructs you and I for how we are to live. We live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait. We're waiting for our Savior to return, and He will. And so in the midst of the, the, the pressures and the pains of the present age, we look forward with eager expectation to the day when we will see our beloved Savior. The blessed hope. Living godly lives as we wait for Christ means that we will set our minds on things above. We will set our minds on things above we will strive by God's grace to maintain an eternal perspective, recognizing that our time is limited. And we will say with the psalmist in Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. O Savior, we say, we look forward to your return Some of you are enduring intense suffering. Your bodies hurt more than they don't. You've experienced firsthand the, the weakness of the body. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God teaches you, trains you to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives 
as you eagerly anticipate the return of your Savior. For when he appears, your pain will subside forever. Others of you are you're just weary, you're just weary with the battle, the daily battle, with your own flesh. See, we can't, we, can't get, we, we can't leave this. It kind of follows us around, and we grow weary. And we find ourselves saying something like this, How long, O Lord? Sin is real. The struggle is real. But we must take heart. The grace of God trains us. The grace of God, his, his goodness toward you. His kindness, he equips us and and trains us for perseverance. So look forward to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus. He's coming back. He will return for his people. Keep doing battle against the flesh. Oh, for grace to hold our tongues and not lash out at others. Oh, for grace to live with integrity and purity. Oh, for grace to love people as Christ loved us. For grace to stand for truth with courage and boldness and humility. Great humility as we wait for his return. And so we are to draw near to Christ Draw near to Christ, the ever-flowing fountain of grace. Draw near to him. Pour your heart out to him. Tell him your sorrows and your pain. Tell him your struggles. And then, take comfort in him. Learn to pray like the psalmist. The end of Psalm 59, David says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. That sounds like grace. You've been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. He continues, O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Do you pray like this? Are you fighting for godliness in the strength that God supplies? God's grace trains us. So we've seen God's grace brings salvation. God's grace trains us how we are to live. And finally, God's grace is manifested in Jesus Christ. God's grace is manifested in Jesus Christ. We come to understand the grace of God as it is manifested in his son. Manifested just means to to make it known. God's grace is, is made known through the person and work of Christ. Let's make some observations here about Jesus. Please look with me at verse 14. Who gave himself for us? 
He gave himself. Let this reality come down heavy on you this morning. Let this reality that Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, indeed, our Creator gave Himself for us. Let this reality overwhelm us this morning. Jesus Christ took on flesh. He became a man. He lived a perfect life, obeying the Father perfectly, always obedient, never committed sin. And yet, he was mocked, beaten, falsely accused, spat upon, and finally nailed to a cross where he would die the death of a criminal. His suffering as the sinless one is beyond our comprehension, bearing the the full weight of the wrath of God for the sins of all who would trust in him. And then he died. They put him in a grave. And he was in the tomb where he remained. And on the third day, he rose from the grave conquering death and securing eternal life for all who would trust in him. Jesus Christ gave himself. God's grace is manifested. It's made known in Christ. Unmerited favor. Unearned favor. This is grace, and we see it supremely in the person and work of Christ. So the question is, Are you trusting him this morning for eternal life? There's no other sacrifice that could atone for sins. None other than the Lamb of God who is Jesus. If you don't know him as Savior and Lord this morning, the call for you is to repent and to believe the gospel. To hear the good news, Christ gave himself for us. Why? The verse continues to redeem us from all lawlessness. Christ, through the payment of his own blood, he, he lifted us out. He lifted us out of our sinful, pitiful condition. He redeemed us or, or liberated us from lawlessness. Listen how Paul describes our salvation. If we were to just keep reading here in Titus chapter 3, we read these words. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. No matter if you were saved at age 5 or 55, this is reality for us. This was your spiritual 
and mine, our spiritual condition. Each of us were, were dead in our trespasses. We were running from God, hated by others and hating one another. And then verse 4, but, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So not only did Christ redeem us, he, he lifted us out of this, this mire that we were in. He, he lifts us out and he purifies us. He cleans us off. He covers us in his, his robes of, of righteousness. He's purifying for himself a people for his own possession. Do we hear this? A people for his own possession. Our lives are his. We belong to Christ. We're here this morning to worship the living Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our gathering this morning is about him. It's not about us. It's about the risen Savior, Jesus. We're being made holy for the Holy One. These truths are glorious and, and they're liberating. We don't have to try to make a name for ourselves. We belong to the King. He's redeemed us for His own possession and as such, we are people now who are zealous to please him, zealous for good works. Did you hear the progression? We're redeemed by Christ, brought out. We're made new, heart of stone removed, heart of flesh. We're given the Spirit. And now, as a result, we are people who want to please him. We're zealous for good works. By God's grace, our lives match our profession. The Apostle Peter in his first letter says this in chapter 2, very similar. This is beautiful. He says, but you, speaking to believers here, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christians are people who have been redeemed and now live to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are his possession. These are words of hope and purpose and assurance for us. Throughout the history of the church, there have been uh, numerous confessions that have been written. One of them being the Heidelberg Catechism. It's kind of a, a, a summary of 
Reformed theology written back in the, in the mid-1500s, I want to read to you the first question and its answer. The question goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Brothers and sisters, that is a beautiful summary of Christian doctrine. We belong to Jesus. We exist for Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. True and lasting joy is found in following Jesus. Therefore, by his grace, we will live in such a way that says to the whole world, I belong to Jesus, and I live differently because of his grace in my life. Sometimes it seems that we get, we get tripped up as believers trying to figure out how we can blend into the world rather than be different. God's grace calls us out. It's to our shame we speak and act like the world. This is damaging to our witness to the grace of God in our lives. If we look and live and speak just like the world, how is the transforming grace of God in our lives to be commended to others? We belong to Jesus. We've been changed, and we're being changed by His grace. These are life-giving truths that we must boldly and lovingly proclaim to a culture that is choking to death on the lie that the path to happiness is found in unhindered expression of the self. The truth is that happiness is found in joyful submission to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Who himself is the most glorious, pure, radiant, holy being, the one who gave himself for us. May we be proclaimers of this truth. For those outside of Christ this morning, those who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, those who haven't experienced this saving grace, won't you come? Won't you come today and bow your knee to the King of Kings, receive his forgiveness? Confess that you're a sinner and receive his perfect righteousness as a gift of his grace. 
God's grace is manifested in Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us. And so may we be people who by his grace are resolved to live godly lives that are consistent with our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ while we wait for his return. Lord, we bless your name this morning. We drink deeply of your grace moment by moment. And so as we leave here, we pray that we would, we would leave here as people who are, are being transformed. We would have your grace on our lips, your compassion in our hearts to proclaim you to a world who so desperately needs you and then to one another that we would encourage one another to live godly lives in the strength that you supply, namely your grace. And we'll praise you for it in the Savior. Amen.